Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles. You'll find one uh, near you, I'm sure, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and it's on page 980, and in the large print version, 1165. Philippians chapter 2, and verses 1 to 4. Paul is writing, as we've seen, to the church that he describes as uh, his his crown, and clearly he had a wonderful relationship with them. He's thanking God for them. He's writing to thank them for a gift, but especially writing uh, because they are anxious about him, and he is anxious about them. And so in uh, chapter 1, He explains to them that though he's in prison um, in Rome, probably the Lord has used his imprisonment. If the the Roman uh, Praetorian guard won't come to hear Paul preach, then God will send Paul to prison to be guarded by uh, members of the Praetorian guard, paid three times as much as your average Roman soldier and uh, he is able to bear witness to them. He's able to tell them how Christ has changed his life. And we've come to the point where he is coming to the point, the exhortation, his concern in verse 27 of chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's spoken about the fact that they, they need to live in a way that is appropriate to the gospel because they are going to be uh, pressured from outside. They're going to be persecuted. And now he uh, turns at the beginning of chapter 2 to a different kind of pressure. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Now, these words are so self-explanatory that from one point of view, they don't really need an exposition. But it wouldn't be Trinity Church if there weren't an exposition. And what I think is important for us in looking at these words is not so much the explanation of the terms that Paul uses, which we can all understand fairly simply, What's really important for us is what was important for the Philippians, namely that they should feel the weight of these words. 
And we understand that, don't we? There is a difference between understanding the words of the Bible and feeling the weight of the words of the Bible. So, in order to try and help us to do that, let me begin with a kind of parable, which, like all uh, good parables, begins a long time ago in a faraway land. A long time ago in a faraway land, I was invited to speak uh, on the edge of Harvard University outside Boston, or as inside Boston, at a conference on the theme of Christianity in a declining culture. To my surprise, given the theme of the conference, uh, we were all housed in one of the swankiest hotels I've ever been in. Um, and after I checked in, I walked over to the elevator, to the lift. And you can always tell a really swanky hotel uh, by this sign, the bellboy or the bellhop was standing there dressed like a bellboy. And as I walked into the elevator and turned round, as one does, I noticed a man, a very distinguished-looking man, who was registering at the hotel desk. And I recognized him immediately. The surprising thing to me was that the bellboy also recognized him. And he turned to me and he said, isn't that Dr. Everett Koop? Now, those of you who are physicians or over 50 or from the United States of America will know exactly who Everett Koop was. He was the Surgeon General of the United States of America. He was, in medical terms, a rock star. He'd been a chief a surgeon in Philadelphia Children's Hospital. He was there because he'd been an elder in the church that I actually attended in Philadelphia. Uh, he had become famous for all kinds of things, not least that he'd been involved, I think, more than once in uh, surgery on conjoined twins. Um, he was like the Elvis Presley of surgeons. Uh, if it had been a surgical conference the surgeons would have been rushing up to him and saying, will you sign my scalpel, Dr. Cook? And he had been essentially the chief medical officer of the United States of America. So I was kind of impressed that this fellow, the bellboy, recognized somebody so distinguished in the medical world as Dr. Everett Cook, who was a very fine Christian man. But it was what he said next that almost took my breath away. His next words were, that man saved my life. That man saved my life. And assuming this young man maybe had had serious surgery in Philadelphia at one time, I engaged him in conversation. But then he explained. He said, Dr. Coop stopped me smoking. Dr. Coop stopped me smoking. Now, what's the point of the parable, apart from name-dropping from a faraway land and a long time ago? It was, to me, this kind of paradox, the unexpectedness of it, that a man who had become famous because of the way he cut things up and pulled things out 
to this young man was significant, not because he'd practiced surgery, but because he had practiced a little preventative medicine. This young man had started smoking, and Dr. Coop, a very significant figure, had helped him to stop smoking. And in later reflection, I thought, how like the Apostle Paul this experience was. If you read through Paul's letters, think about his letters to the Corinthians, in which at times he can get really almost feisty in his burden for them, or his letter to the Galatians where he doesn't stop to thank God for them. He's, he's acting as a surgeon. He's, he's cutting things out. He's, he's seeking to provide the body with the healing that it needs by getting rid of what will destroy it, what will alienate believers from one another. But in Philippians, by and large, he's practicing preventative medicine. And he's practicing preventative medicine because he is conscious that, the end of chapter 1, not only is their unity going to be threatened from the outside, and remember how he emphasizes, as Jesus emphasizes, that the, the beautiful fellowship, the unity of a church family is intimately related to the power of its witness to the outside world. But he's concerned here now, and in other parts of this letter, with a different kind of threat, the threat that the body of Christ may be divided from the inside, and as a result, its witness to the outside world will be minimized because those who are not reconciled in fellowship with one another can hardly speak powerfully to a world about a gospel that brings reconciliation. And it's very interesting to me in this connection that what Paul is doing here is built on Jesus' words in Matthew 16:18. I'm building my church, and the gates of Hades will seek to destroy it, but they will not be able to. And when he does start building the New Testament church in the first six chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, first three chapters, wonderful illustrations of how he's building the church by bringing new men and women into the fellowship of God's people, immediately afterwards there are two threats. There is the threat from the outside of intimidation and persecution that seeks to destroy the church. But then in chapters 5 and 6, there's the threat from the inside. In chapter 5, the threat from the inside is a couple who pursue selfish ambition. The very language that Paul uses here. And then in chapter 6, the next threat to the church is actually what Paul will later on in chapter 2 describe as murmuring and grumbling when there is grumbling between two different segments in the Jerusalem church about something that is important but not central to the gospel. And I think what he's doing here, the weight of what he says here, is because of this understanding he has that comes out later on 
in chapter 2 that the character of our fellowship, the sweetness, the unity of our fellowship is intimately related to the power of the witness of a church family to a watching world. Because when it is true, when it is real, the watching world, if it is able to taste and see it, realizes that there is nothing in the world of which they know that can produce these kinds of relationships in which people whose lives the Lord Jesus has changed live together in the kind of sweet harmony that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here. And it's very interesting, I think, that there are these little indications in Philippians, and as the letter goes on, it gets clearer and clearer, that there may be some members in the church who have started smoking, if I can draw on the parable. And that's the reason why in chapter 1 he embraces them all. He keeps using the word all. And then here in chapter 2, you'll notice, for example, in verse 2, the same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. Later on, uh, he wants them to harmonize in this gracious way. And so what he writes here is, in a sense, medicine preventative medicine. Later on, he gives us a little hint that the smoking may have started when in chapter 2 he appeals by name but without reference to the issue to two members of the church who I suspect for reasons of selfish ambition have fallen out and perhaps are guilty of what he says in chapter 2, the murmuring and grumbling and complaining, that eventually like a low sound gets louder and louder, and still affects the whole church. So if I may, let me continue this medical metaphor, not because I'm qualified to do that, but because I think it helps us to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. And think about these four verses um, rather like the leaflet that's inside the, 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 the package of medicine that you get. I, I happened to um, just pull out today um, the leaflet. This is for paracetamol, two sides. Um, you actually need to have several degrees in medicine before you can understand what's going on. So this, this is minimalistic. As those of you who are on heavy drugs, I mean of the helpful kind, um, I mean you know that they get longer and longer. And often they say essentially two things. The first is to tell you what, what this medicine is, and the second is to tell you how to take it. So I want us to think about what Paul says here as the medicine that we need to take, the preventative medicine for the people of God, and then to look at some of the instructions he gives that will help us to take it properly. So first of all, the preventative medicine. 
if there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, be, he says, those who complete my joy. Isn't that interesting? That making your minister happy is a good motive for living in a way that's consistent with the gospel. What are the basic ingredients here? Forgive another I remember, um, but Aberdeen brings back many memories. And this one is, I think, of the sixth weekend of my first term at university, when the Speaker of the Christian Union was John Stott. Um, I guess there were only about 50 members of the Christian Union, and John Stott, as many of you know, was the most refined and, and, and uh, as I got to know him, most gracious Christian man. And he was, he was um, rugby and Oxford or Cambridge, it was Cambridge graduate, and he spoke the way some Cambridge graduates do, slightly out of the corner of the mouth. And I'll never forget his first words. He actually asked a question, and there were like fewer of us in the room than are seated downstairs. And I, I've never forgotten the question. The reason I've never forgotten it was because he waited for somebody to answer. And his question was, I wish I could imitate him perfectly. What is the secret of Christian unity? What is the secret of Christian unity? And I'm shy, I'm 17, I'm probably sitting near the back, and I, you know, um, don't look at me, Mr. Stott. Then some idiot answered the question and got it wrong. That's why I remember it. And then he said, well, he said, the secret of Christian unity is humility. He loved those rhymes. The secret of Christian unity is humility. Now, that's right. But actually, I think if you read Paul's words closely here, it's not the whole story. The secret of Christian unity among us is obviously going to be the expression of humility, but the secret to the humility is what we really need. And that's why first thing he says is Jesus Christ. The ultimate secret of Christian unity is actually not the humility that's produced in me, but the Christ who produces that humility. You see, there can very easily be a subtle difference between seeking to be humble and yet losing sight of Christ and keeping your gaze fixed on Christ and all that's ours in Christ that in a sense allows the preventative medicine of the gospel to work by creating humility in us. And that's why he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, by which he means since there is encouragement in Christ. The church that we went to in Philadelphia, we quite often sang Newton's hymn, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken. And there's a verse in that hymn that begins, Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace remember, amen, where I sat in the church, no matter which hymn book you picked up, 
some youngster had come along with a pencil and scored out the if and changed it to since, because he hadn't yet learned that there was a thing called a first-class conditional where if actually obviously means since. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Now, that's probably about half a dozen sermons, isn't it? Like word by word. I want you to notice what Paul is doing here. Um, And I think I'm not alone in thinking this, that what he's saying is, since there is encouragement for you in Christ, then think about what that means. And then he subdivides the idea of our encouragement in Christ in a threefold way. Comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. And if the way Paul thinks has kind of seeped down into the way you think, that probably reminds you of a pattern that appears fairly regularly just in the way Paul thinks and speaks, the threefoldness of it. There's almost a direct echo here of 2 Corinthians 13:14 that we know as the benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, that is the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul, essentially Paul's last words to a fractured church is to understand that in Jesus Christ we enjoy nothing less than access to the fellowship of God, the Trinity, to that fellowship that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have together. And it's in that, it's in the way in which in Christ we are brought into that, that the very foundation of our fellowship together is grounded. If there is any comfort from love, from the love of God, if you've come to know that God loves you, what a thing it is to know that God loves you. If in Jesus Christ you have come into the fellowship of the Spirit so that you know that in all your weakness your life is empowered by the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy that you have sensed from the Lord Jesus Christ, think about the recent series on Hebrews and the the way in which for the author of Hebrews the, the sympathy of Jesus Christ is a is a solvent to many of our inward anxieties and fears. So I think what Paul is doing here is not so much wanting us to stop and analyze all the different words he's using, but but this is a kind of rhetorical way. You know, when Paul spoke, he didn't think in dictionary terms, what does that word mean? What does this word mean? What does this word mean? He thought in Christ-centered terms, in terms of how in Christ we're brought into fellowship with God. And he's, he's encouraging these Philippians to understand that Christian fellowship, Christian unity, the sweetness, the harmony of a church family is actually rooted in God Himself. And the message is, take the medicine. By faith, take the medicine. 
But how do we take the medicine? Well, that's the second thing I want us to notice in these verses. He gives us some simple instructions for taking the medicine. And his basic instruction is like the last thing the doctor maybe says to you, or the pharmacist says to you, keep taking the medicine. Keep taking the medicine. Make me happy. Keep taking the medicine. Let the medicine do its work. And, you know, I'm sure GPs are different, but, but I think good GPs understand that the, the people who come in, and the only reason they're there is because they think there's something wrong, they don't always take in what you're saying. And so they probably try and say it in more than one way. And you'll notice that's exactly what Paul does. Complete my joy. Let me say it in as many ways as I can think of in a moment. Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. He's saying, take the medicine. Let the medicine do its work. Um, this is the leaflet that says, as my leaflet here for paracetamol says, 500 milligram tablets, capsule shaped, those must be the less expensive ones, keep this leaflet. You may need to read it again. You may need to read it again. And that's a wonderful word to us, isn't it? That's not, by the way, inspired scripture. That's the NHS or, or whoever made the paracetamol. But that's what he's saying. By piling up these uh, saying statements that at the end of the day are all different ways of saying the same thing. He's saying, keep taking the medicine. read a story years ago about a GP who had um, done domiciliary visits to a very elderly lady for years. And uh, there was a big chest at the bottom of her bed, uh, which he had often admired. I think it had come from India or somewhere beautiful chest. And to his astonishment, when she died, the lawyer sent him a letter saying, come and see me, you may learn something to your advantage. And to his astonishment and pleasure, she'd left him this beautiful wooden chest in her will, and the lawyer gave him the key. He went to the house, he opened the chest, he found every single prescription he'd ever prescribed for her inside the chest. Now, you may be able to live that way, but you can't live together without keeping taking the medicine. We need to keep coming back to this again and again and again. And I think this is the reason why Paul said, just make me happy. Keep taking the medicine. But then you notice in verses 3 and 4, he tells us how to take the medicine. And see it in the instructions. Um, and even for paracetamol, they're both negative and positive. Um, don't do it this way. Maybe you're on a medicine that says, don't, don't take this with cranberry juice or something like that. There's a, there's a negative. If the medicine is going to work, you, you mustn't dilute its power by something that is going to be contrary to its effect. And this is what he says here, isn't it, in, 
in uh, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And you notice that negative and positive pulls always negative and positive. You always walk on two feet, negative and positive, negative and positive, negative and positive. It's like Christ's death and his resurrection working in us, negative and positive. And so he's saying, um, taking this medicine of Jesus Christ means an end to selfish ambition and conceit. And how does it do that? Well, in the Bible, negatives never work on their own. That's a tremendously important principle for some of us. Some of us are wired towards trying to get rid of our sin. But you'll notice that Paul says, if this medicine is going to work, if you're going to be effective in the negative, the only thing that ultimately will drive out the negative of your selfish ambition and your personal conceit is, and you'll notice it in the second half of the verse, it's this, that in humility you count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, the old versions used to say, count others better than yourselves. It doesn't mean better than yourselves. You know, we're not all equally good at everything. It means count others more important than yourself. And in fact, it's quite a strong word. Paul uses it another couple of times in Philippians. Surpassing, that's the idea. Instead of looking down on people. I mean, think about it this way. Think about the effect in a church family. I mean, visually it creates a comical effect. But think about the effect in a church family where every single member of the church family had a disposition of looking up to every other member and counting them as more important than themselves. Um, it's not accidental that Paul, in verses 5 to 11, immediately goes on to speak about the Lord Jesus. And in a way, as God willing, we will see in a few weeks' time, in a way that almost exactly parallels the story that John tells in John 13 of how Jesus got on his knees and looked up to every one of his disciples. So that if you saw only that picture, would you not come to the conclusion that they must be more important than he is? And you can't, you can't read the end of Jesus' life, his dying for us on the cross, without being driven to the sense that's, that is actually the characteristic of the Lord Jesus and the characteristic of his spirit, and it's his spirit who brings us unity. That you can't look at the cross without thinking, does he think I am more important than he is? And that's why he was there. Because he did. And this is why Paul says, keep taking the medicine, because this ain't natural to us. Something else is natural to us. But you see what happens when, when our gaze is fixed on the Lord Jesus, 
when our hearts are full of the Lord Jesus, the medicine begins to work. And that's what he's saying here. Let the medicine do its work. But if it's going to do its work, then it, it needs to work in you. And therefore, you work, mustn't work against it. And then he puts it in verse 4 in a slightly different way. Uh, but it boils down to the same thing, doesn't it? So let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sweet harmony is the most difficult thing in the world. And yet, the medicine for it is the simplest to take. Don't put your own interests first. And, and he's talking about a mindset, isn't he? He actually goes on to say, this is the mindset that we've got in Christ Jesus. That when he looked at people, I mean, just, just kind of flash your imagination through the Gospels and all the encounters of Jesus, and you can almost see Jesus' mind working, the, in, his interests, her interests, what's going to be best for them, not what is going to be, as it were, best for me. Harmony in a church family isn't rocket science, but what it actually requires is the death of the enthroned self. Well, Martin Luther said, I'm more afraid of the great God self than I am of the Pope and all these cardinals. Because he knew how, how deeply, how deeply embedded in his soul was that self-centeredness. And I think that's why in verses 5 to 11, he returns to the notion of the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think it's just as well this passage comes in the regular sequence of exposition, or you would be suspecting that the elders and our ministers had uh, surrounded me at some point and said, we're really having trouble in the church. Would you mind preaching on unity? But it, it's just come in the flow, isn't it? But that's a wonderful thing because we do need to keep reading the leaflet. We do need to keep taking the medicine. We do need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And in the flow of things, it was supposed to be 5 to 11 that was the passage for today, that in God's providence is the passage the next time when we come back to Philippians, because that would be so appropriate to the Lord's Supper. But there's something equally appropriate in this passage to the Lord's Supper. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And this, thank God, is surely the effect on us mentally, dispositionally, even emotionally of coming to the Lord's Supper and taking from the same loaf because we're united to the same Christ, because our gaze is fixed on Him. And when that is true, all the noxious poisons that could 
mar and ultimately destroy the beautiful fellowship of a church family will be dissolved. So, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, keep the leaflet. You may need to read it again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is your word and that you speak through it. Thank you that your Holy Spirit applies it invisibly, um, almost anonymously, as though we didn't notice him, and privately, so that no one else really knows the way in which you are pressing home your word to us, to raise our eyes to the Lord Jesus, to teach us or to rebuke us or to transform us, to equip us together to be servants of God. And as we turn from the bread of your word to the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, bathe us, we pray, in a sense of the greatness of our Savior. And by that baptism of his grace, dissolve within us and among us anything that could be noxious in the way of self-seeking and self-interest or murmuring and grumbling, so that as every heart is yielded to our Lord Jesus Christ, we may be beautifully one together and hold out the word of life to a dark and dying world. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name.